Chapter Ten of the Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Condition of the Working Class in England in 1844 by Friedrich Engels. Chapter Ten: The Agricultural Proletariat. We have seen in the introduction how simultaneously with the small bourgeoisie and the modest independence of the former workers the small peasantry also was ruined when the former union of industrial and agricultural work was dissolved the abandoned fields thrown together into large farms and the small peasants superseded by the overwhelming competition of the large farmers instead of being landowners or leaseholders as they had been hitherto they were now obliged to hire themselves as labourers to the large farmers or the landlords. For a time this position was endurable, though a deterioration in comparison with their former one. The extension of industry kept pace with the increase of population until the progress of manufacture began to assume a slower pace, and the perpetual improvement of machinery made it impossible for manufacture to absorb the whole surplus of the agricultural population. From this time forward, the distress which had hitherto existed only in the manufacturing districts, and then only at times, appeared in the agricultural districts too. The twenty-five years' struggle with France came to an end at about the same time. The diminished production at the various seats of the wars, the shutting off of imports, and the necessity of providing for the British army in Spain, had given English agriculture an artificial prosperity and had besides withdrawn to the army vast numbers of workers from their ordinary occupations. This check upon the import trade, the opportunity for exportation, and the military demand for workers, now suddenly came to an end, and the necessary consequence was what the English call agricultural distress. The farmers had to sell their corn at low prices, and could therefore pay only low wages. In 1815, in order to keep up prices, the corn laws were passed, prohibiting the importation of corn so long as the price of wheat continued less than eighty shillings per quarter. These naturally ineffective laws were several times modified, but did not succeed in ameliorating the distress in the agricultural districts. All that they did was to change the disease, which, under free competition from abroad, would have assumed an acute form, culminating in a series of crises, into a chronic one which bore heavily but uniformly upon the farm labourers, for a time after the rise of the agricultural proletariat, the patriarchal relation between master and man, which was being destroyed for manufacture, developed here the same relation of the farmer to his hands, which still exists almost everywhere in Germany. So long as this lasted, the poverty of the farmhands was less conspicuous. They shared the fate of the farmer, and were discharged only in cases of the direst necessity. But now all this is changed. The farmhands have become day-laborers almost everywhere, are employed only when needed by the farmers, and therefore often have no work for weeks together, especially in winter. In the patriarchal time the hands and their families lived on the farm, and their children grew up there, the farmer trying to find occupation on the spot for the oncoming generation. Day-laborers then were the exception, not the rule. Thus there was on every farm a larger number of hands than were strictly necessary. It became, therefore, the interest of the farmers to dissolve this relation, drive the farmhand from the farm, and transform him into a day-laborer. This took place pretty generally towards the year 1830, and the consequence was that the hitherto latent overpopulation was set free, 
the rate of wages forced down, and the poor rate enormously increased. From this time the agricultural districts became the headquarters of permanent, as the manufacturing districts had long been of periodic, pauperism, and the modification of the poor law was the first measure which the state was obliged to apply to the daily increasing impoverishment of the country parishes. Moreover, the constant extension of farming on a large scale, the introduction of threshing and other machines, and the employment of women and children, which is now so general that its effects have recently been investigated by a special official commission, through a large number of men out of employment. It is manifest, therefore, that here too the system of industrial production has made its entrance, by means of farming on a large scale, by the abolition of the patriarchal relation, which is of the greatest importance just here, by the introduction of machinery, steam, and the labor of women and children. In so doing, it has swept the last and most stationary portion of working humanity into the revolutionary movement. But the longer agriculture had remained stationary, the heavier now became the burden upon the worker, the more violently broke forth the results of the disorganization of the old social fabric. The overpopulation came to light all at once, and could not, as in the manufacturing districts, be absorbed by the needs of an increasing production. New factories could always be built, if there were consumers for their products, but new land could not be created. The cultivation of waste common land was too daring a speculation for the bad times following the conclusion of peace. The necessary consequence was that the competition of the workers among each other reached the highest point of intensity, and wages fell to the minimum. So long as the old poor law existed, the workers received relief from the wages. Wages naturally fell still lower, because the farmers forced the largest possible number of laborers to claim relief. The higher poor rate, necessitated by the surplus population, was only increased by this measure, and the new poor law, of which we shall have more to say later, was now enacted as a remedy. But this did not improve matters. Wages did not rise, the surplus population could not be got rid of, and the cruelty of the new law did but serve to embitter the people to the utmost. Even the poor rate, which diminished at first after the passage of the new law, attained its old height after a few years. Its only effect was that, whereas previously three to four million half-paupers had existed, a million of total paupers now appeared, and the rest, still half-paupers, merely went without relief. The poverty in the agricultural districts has increased every year. The people live in the greatest want. Whole families must struggle along with six, seven, or eight shillings a week, and at times have nothing. Let us hear a description of this population, given by a Liberal Member of Parliament as early as 1830. Quote, an English agricultural labourer and an English pauper, these words are synonymous. His father was a pauper, and his mother's milk contained no nourishment. From his earliest childhood he had bad food, and only half enough to still his hunger, and even yet he undergoes the pangs of unsatisfied hunger almost all the time that he is not asleep. He is half-clad, and has not more fire than barely suffices to cook his scanty meal. And so cold and damp are always at home with him, and leave him only in fine weather. He is married, but he knows nothing of the joys of the husband and father. His wife and children, hungry, rarely warm, often ill and helpless, always careworn and hopeless like himself, 
are naturally grasping, selfish, and troublesome, and so, to use his own expression, he hates the sight of them, and enters his cot only because it offers him a trifle more shelter from rain and wind than a hedge. He must support his family, though he cannot do so, whence come beggary, deceit of all sorts, ending in fully developed craftiness. If he were so inclined, he yet has not the courage which makes of the more energetic of his class wholesale poachers and smugglers. But he pilfers when occasion offers, and teaches his children to lie and steal. His abject and submissive demeanour towards his wealthy neighbours shows that they treat him roughly and with suspicion. Hence he fears and hates them, but he never will injure them by force. He is depraved through and through, too far gone to possess even the strength of despair. His wretched existence is brief. Rheumatism and asthma bring him to the workhouse, where he will draw his last breath without a single pleasant recollection, and will make room for another luckless wretch to live and die as he has done. Our author adds that besides this class of agricultural labourers, there is still another, somewhat more energetic and better endowed physically, mentally, and morally, those, namely, who live as wretchedly but were not born to this condition. These he represents as better in their family life, but smugglers and poachers who get into frequent bloody conflicts with the gamekeepers and revenue officers of the coast become more embittered against society during the prison life which they often undergo, and so stand abreast of the first class in their hatred of the property holders. Quote, and, he says in closing, this whole class is called, by courtesy, the bold peasantry of England. End quote. Down to the present time, this description applies to the greater portion of the agricultural labourers of England. In June 1844, the Times sent a correspondent into the agricultural districts to report upon the condition of this class, and the report which he furnished agreed wholly with the foregoing. In certain districts, wages were not more than six shillings a week, not more, that is, than in many districts in Germany, while the prices of all the necessaries of life are at least twice as high. What sort of life these people lead may be imagined, their food scanty and bad, their clothing ragged, their dwellings cramped and desolate, small, wretched huts with no comforts whatsoever, and for young people lodging-houses where men and women are scarcely separated and illegitimate intercourse thus provoked. One or two days without work in the course of a month must inevitably plunge such people into the direst want. Moreover, they cannot combine to raise wages, because they are scattered, and if one alone refuses to work for low wages, there are dozens out of work, or supported by the rates, who are thankful for the most trifling offer, while to him who declines work, every other form of relief than the hated workhouse is refused by the poor-law guardians as to a lazy vagabond for the guardians are the very farmers from whom, or from whose neighbours and acquaintances alone, he can get work. And not from one or two special districts of England do such reports come. On the contrary, the distress is general, equally great in the north and south, the east and west. The condition of the labourers in Suffolk and Norfolk corresponds with that of Devonshire, Hampshire, and Sussex. Wages are as low in Dorsetshire and Oxfordshire as in Kent and Surrey, Buckinghamshire and Cambridgeshire. One especially barbaric cruelty against the working class is embodied in the game laws, 
which are more stringent than in any other country, while the game is plentiful beyond all conception. The English peasant who, according to the old English custom and tradition, sees in poaching only a natural and noble expression of courage and daring, is stimulated still further by the contrast between his own poverty and the cartel et notre plaisir of the lord, who preserves thousands of hares and game-birds for his private enjoyment. The labourer lays snares, or shoots here and there a piece of game. It does not injure the landlord, as a matter of fact, for he has a vast superfluity, and it brings the poacher a meal for himself and his starving family. But if he is caught he goes to jail, and for a second offence receives at the least seven years' transportation. From the severity of these laws arise the frequent bloody conflicts with the gamekeepers, which lead to a number of murders every year. Hence the post of gamekeeper is not only dangerous, but of ill repute and despised. Last year, in two cases, gamekeepers shot themselves rather than continue their work. Such is the moderate price at which the landed aristocracy purchases the noble sport of shooting. But what does it matter to the lords of the soil? Whether one or two more or less of the surplus live or die matters nothing, and even if in consequence of the game laws half the surplus population could be put out of the way, it would be all the better for the other half, according to the philanthropy of the English landlords. Although the conditions of life in the country, the isolated dwellings, the stability of the surroundings and occupations, and consequently of the thoughts, are decidedly unfavourable to all development, yet poverty and want bear their fruits even here. The manufacturing and mining proletariat emerged early from the first stage of resistance to our social order, the direct rebellion of the individual by the perpetration of crime, but the peasants are still in this stage at the present time. Their favourite method of social warfare is incendiarism. In the winter which followed the revolution of July in 1830-31, these incendiarisms first became general. Disturbances had taken place, and the whole region of Sussex and the adjacent counties has been brought into a state of excitement in October, in consequence of an increase of the Coast Guard, which made smuggling much more difficult and ruined the coast, in the words of a farmer. Changes in the poor law, low wages, and the introduction of machinery. In the winter the farmers' hay and cornstacks were burnt in the fields, and the very barns and stables under their windows. Nearly every night a couple of such fires blazed up, and spread terror among the farmers and landlords. The offenders were rarely discovered, and the workers attributed the incendiarism to a mythical person whom they named Swing. Men puzzled their brains to discover who this Swing could be, and whence this rage among the poor of the country districts. Of the great moat of power, want, oppression, only a single person here and there thought, and certainly no one in the agricultural districts. Since that year the incendiarisms have been repeated every winter, with each recurring unemployed season of the agricultural labourers. In the winter of 1843-44 they were once more extraordinarily frequent. There lies before me a series of numbers of the Northern Star of that time, each one of which contains a report of several incendiarisms, stating in each case its authority. The numbers wanting in the following list I have not at hand. But they too doubtless contain a number of cases. Moreover, such a sheet cannot possibly ascertain all the cases which occur. November 25, 1843, two cases. 
Several earlier ones are discussed. December 16th, in Bedfordshire, general excitement for a fortnight past, in consequence of frequent incendiarisms, of which several take place every night. Two great farmhouses burnt down within the last few days. In Cambridgeshire, four great farmhouses, Hertfordshire one, and besides these, fifteen other incendiarisms in different districts. December 30th, in Norfolk one, Suffolk two, Essex two, Cheshire one, Lancashire one, Derby, Lincoln, and the South twelve. January 6th, 1844, in all ten. January 13th, seven. January 20th, four incendiarisms. From this time forward, three or four incendiarisms per week are reported, and not as formerly until the spring only, but far into July and August, and that crimes of this sort are expected to increase in the approaching hard season of 1844-45, the English papers already indicate. What do my readers think of such a state of things in the quiet, idyllic country districts of England? Is this social war, or is it not? Is it a natural state of things which can last? Yet here the landlords and farmers are as dull and stupefied, as blind to everything which does not directly put money into their pockets, as the manufacturers and the bourgeoisie in general in the manufacturing districts. If the latter promise their employees salvation through the repeal of the corn laws, the landlords and a great part of the farmers promise theirs heaven upon earth from the maintenance of the same law but in neither case do the property-holders succeed in winning the workers to the support of their pet hobby. Like the operatives, the agricultural laborers are thoroughly indifferent to the repeal or non-repeal of the corn laws. Yet the question is an important one for both. That is to say, by the repeal of the corn laws, free competition, the present social economy, is carried to its extreme point. All further development within the present order comes to an end, and the only possible step farther is a radical transformation of the social order. For the agricultural laborers, the question has further the following important bearing. Free importation of corn involves, how I cannot explain here, the emancipation of the farmers from the landlords, their transformation into liberals. Towards this consummation the Anti-Corn Law League has already largely contributed, and this is its only real service. When the farmers become liberals, that is, conscious bourgeois, the agricultural laborers will inevitably become chartists and socialists. The first change involves the second. And that a new movement is already beginning among the agricultural laborers is proved by a meeting which Earl Radnor, a liberal landlord, caused to be held in October, 1844, near Highworth, where his estates lie, to pass resolutions against the corn laws. At this meeting, the laborers, perfectly indifferent as to these laws, demanded something wholly different, namely small holdings, at low rent, for themselves, telling Earl Radnor all sorts of bitter truths to his face. Thus the movement of the working class is finding its way into the remote, stationary, mentally dead agricultural districts, and thanks to the general distress, will soon be as firmly rooted and energetic as in the manufacturing districts. As to the religious state of the agricultural laborers, they are, it is true, more pious than the manufacturing operatives. But they, too, are greatly at odds with the church, for in these districts members of the established church almost exclusively are to be found. 
a correspondent of the morning chronicle who over the signature quote, one who has whistled at the plough end quote, reports his tour through the agricultural districts relates among other things the following conversation with some labourers after service quote, i asked one of these people whether the preacher of the day was their own clergyman quote, yes blast him he is our own parson and begs the whole time he's been always a beggin as long as i've known him Note, the sermon had been upon a mission to the heathen quote, and as long as i've known him too added another and i never knew a parson but what was begging for this or the other quote, yes said a woman who had just come out of the church and look how wages are going down and see the rich vagabonds with whom the parsons eat and drink and hunt so help me god we are more fit to starve in the workhouse than pay the parsons as go among the heathen quote, and why said another don't they send the parsons as drones every day in salisbury cathedral for nobody but the bare stones why don't they go among the heathen quote, they don't go said the old man whom i had first asked because they are rich they have all the land they need they want the money in order to get rid of the poor parsons i know what they want i know them too long for that quote, but good friends i asked you surely do not always come out of the church with such bitter feelings towards the preacher why do you go at all quote, what for do we go said the woman we must if we do not want to lose everything work and all we must quote, i learned later that they had certain little privileges of firewood and potato land which they paid for on condition of going to church after describing their poverty and ignorance the correspondent closes by saying quote, and now i boldly assert that the condition of these people their poverty their hatred of the church their external submission and inward bitterness against the ecclesiastical dignitaries is the rule among the country parishes of england and its opposite is the exception if the peasantry of england shows the consequences which a numerous agricultural proletariat in connection with large farming involves for the country districts wales illustrates the ruin of the smallholders if the english country parishes reproduce the antagonism between capitalist and proletarian the state of the welsh peasantry corresponds to the progressive ruin of the small bourgeoisie in the towns in wales are to be found almost exclusively small holders who cannot with like profit sell their products as cheaply as the larger more favourably situated english farmers with whom however they are obliged to compete moreover in some places the quality of the land admits of the raising of livestock only which is but slightly profitable then too these welsh farmers by reason of their separate nationality which they retain pertinaciously are much more stationary than the english farmers but the competition among themselves and with their english neighbours and the increased mortgages upon their land consequent upon this has reduced them to such a state that they can scarcely live at all and because they have not recognised the true cause of their wretched condition they attribute it to all sorts of small causes such as high tolls etc which do check the development of agriculture and commerce but are taken into account as standing charges by every one who takes a holding and are therefore really ultimately paid by the landlord here too the new poor law is cordially hated by the tenants who hover in perpetual danger of coming under its sway in eighteen forty three the famous rebecca disturbances broke out among the welsh peasantry 
the men dressed in women's clothing blackened their faces and fell in armed crowds upon the toll-gates destroyed them amidst great rejoicing and firing of guns demolished the toll-keepers houses wrote threatening letters in the name of the imaginary rebecca and once went so far as to storm the workhouse of carmarthen later when the militia was called out and the police strengthened the peasants drew them off with wonderful skill upon false scents demolished toll-gates at one point while the militia lured by false signal bugles was marching in some opposite direction and betook themselves finally when the police was too thoroughly reinforced to single incendiarisms and attempts at murder as usual these greater crimes were the end of the movement many withdrew from disapproval others from fear and peace was restored of itself the government appointed a commission to investigate the affair and its causes and there was an end of the matter the poverty of the peasantry continues however and will one day since it cannot under existing circumstances grow less must go on intensifying produce more serious manifestations than these humorous rebecca masquerades if england illustrates the results of the system of farming on a large scale and wales on a small one ireland exhibits the consequences of over-dividing the soil the great mass of the population of ireland consists of small tenants who occupy a sorry hut without partitions and a potato-patch just large enough to supply them most scantily with potatoes through the winter in consequence of the great competition which prevails among these small tenants the rent has reached an unheard-of height double treble and quadruple that paid in england for every agricultural labourer seeks to become a tenant-farmer and though the division of land has gone so far there still remain numbers of labourers in competition for plots although in great britain thirty-two million acres of land are cultivated and in ireland but fourteen million although great britain produces agricultural products to the value of one hundred and fifty million pounds and ireland of but thirty-six million pounds there are in ireland seventy-five thousand agricultural proletarians more than in the neighbouring island how great the competition for land in ireland must be is evident from this extraordinary disproportion especially when one reflects that the labourers in great britain are living in the utmost distress the consequence of this competition is that it is impossible for the tenants to live much better than the labourers by reason of the high rents paid the irish people is thus held in crushing poverty from which it cannot free itself under our present social conditions these people live in the most wretched clay huts scarcely good enough for cattle pens have scant food all winter long or as the report above quoted expresses it they have potatoes half enough thirty weeks in the year and the rest of the year nothing when the time comes in the spring at which this provision reaches its end or can no longer be used because of its sprouting wife and children go forth to beg and tramp in the country with their kettle in their hands meanwhile the husband after planting potatoes for the next year goes in search of work either in ireland or england and returns at the potato harvest to his family this is the condition in which nine-tenths of the irish country folks live they are poor as church mice wear the most wretched rags and stand upon the lowest plane of intelligence possible in a half-civilized country according to the report quoted there are in a population of eight and a half millions five hundred and eighty-five thousand heads of families in a state of total destitution 
and according to other authorities cited by sheriff allison there are in ireland two million three hundred thousand persons who could not live without public or private assistance or twenty seven per cent of the whole population paupers the cause of this poverty lies in the existing social conditions especially in competition here found in the form of the subdivision of the soil much effort has been spent in finding other causes it has been asserted that the relation of the tenant to the landlord who lets his estate in large lots to tenants who again have their sub-tenants and sub-sub-tenants in turn so that often ten middlemen come between the landlord and the actual cultivator it has been asserted that the shameful law which gives the landlord the right of expropriating the cultivator who may have paid his rent duly if the first tenant fails to pay the landlord that this law is to blame for all this poverty but all this determines only the form in which the poverty manifests itself make the small tenant a landowner himself and what follows the majority could not live upon their holdings even if they had no rent to pay and any slight improvement which might take place would be lost again in a few years in consequence of the rapid increase of population the children would then live to grow up under the improved conditions who now die in consequence of poverty in early childhood from another side comes the assertion that the shameless oppression inflicted by the english is the cause of the trouble it is the cause of the somewhat earlier appearance of this poverty but not of the poverty itself or the blame is laid on the protestant church forced upon a catholic nation but divide among the irish what the church takes from them and it does not reach six shillings a head besides tithes are a tax upon landed property not upon the tenant though he may nominally pay them now since the commutation bill of eighteen thirty eight the landlord pays the tithes directly and reckons so much higher rent so that the tenant is none the better off and in the same way a hundred other causes of this poverty are brought forward all proving as little as these this poverty is the result of our social conditions apart from these causes may be found for the manner in which it manifests itself but not for the fact of its existence that poverty manifests itself in ireland thus and not otherwise is owing to the character of the people and to their historical development the irish are a people related in their whole character to the latin nations to the french and especially to the italians the bad features of their character we have already had depicted by carlyle let us now hear an irishman who at least comes nearer to the truth than carlyle with his prejudice in favour of the teutonic character Quote, they are restless yet indolent clever and indiscreet stormy impatient and improvident brave by instinct generous without much reflection quick to revenge and forgive insults to make and to renounce friendships gifted with genius prodigally sparingly with judgment with the irish feeling and passion predominate reason must bow before them their sensuous excitable nature prevents reflection and quiet persevering activity from reaching development such a nation is utterly unfit for manufacture as now conducted hence they held fast to agriculture and remained upon the lowest plane even of that with the small subdivisions of land which were not here artificially created as in france and on the rhine by the division of great estates but have existed from time immemorial 
an improvement of the soil by the investment of capital was not to be thought of and it would according to allison require one hundred and twenty million pounds sterling to bring the soil up to the not very high state of fertility already attained in england the english immigration which might have raised the standard of irish civilization has contented itself with the most brutal plundering of the irish people and while the irish by their immigration into england have furnished england a leaven which will produce its own results in the future they have little for which to be thankful to the english immigration the attempts of the irish to save themselves from their present ruin on the one hand take the form of crimes these are the order of the day in the agricultural districts and are nearly always directed against the most immediate enemies the landlord's agents or their obedient servants the protestant intruders whose large farms are made up of the potato patches of hundreds of ejected families such crimes are especially frequent in the south and west on the other hand the irish hope for relief by means of the agitation for the repeal of the legislative union with england from all the foregoing it is clear that the uneducated irish must see in the english their worst enemies and their first hope of improvement in the conquest of national independence but quite as clear is it too that irish distress cannot be removed by any act of repeal such an act would however at once lay bare the fact that the cause of english misery which now seems to come from abroad is really to be found at home meanwhile it is an open question whether the accomplishment of repeal will be necessary to make this clear to the irish hitherto neither chartism nor socialism has had marked success in ireland i close my observations upon ireland at this point the more readily as the repeal agitation of eighteen forty three and o'connell's trial have been the means of making the irish distress more and more known in germany we have now followed the proletariat of the british islands through all branches of its activity and found it everywhere living in want and misery under totally inhuman conditions we have seen discontent arise with the rise of the proletariat grow develop and organize we have seen open bloodless and bloody battles of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie we have investigated the principles according to which the fate the hopes and fears of the proletariat are determined and we have found that there is no prospect of improvement in their condition we have had an opportunity here and there of observing the conduct of the bourgeoisie towards the proletariat and we have found that it considers only itself has only its own advantage in view however in order not to be unjust let us investigate its mode of action somewhat more exactly End of chapter ten